What has gone wrong with the world? How do we explain what our world is like, this coexistence of good and bad, kindness and hatred, joy and sorrow? I reckon if we, we went down on County Road and, and asked people passing by that question, we'd get a whole load of different answers, wouldn't we? Perhaps some would say the problem is a political system that props up the rich. That may well be part of the problem, but all over the world, across a whole variety of political ideologies, we see the same kinds of social issues. Perhaps then the problem is a, a lack of education. That was certainly Tony Blair's thought. His mantra when he was Prime Minister was education, education, education. But we've been doing that for decades and our problems haven't gone away. Maybe then the problem is just a few bad apples spoiling the world for the rest of us. But I think probably a moment's honest reflection on our part would reveal, well, at least I can be as selfish and unkind as the next person. Now, there might actually even be some people who say, nothing's wrong with the world. This is just the way the world is. It's the survival of the fittest guys. We're evolutionally wired to be selfish and self-oriented, to do whatever works for our survival and advantage. And that might go some way to explaining the bad in our societies, but it doesn't account for the good, though, does it? It doesn't account for the, the selfless acts of service and sacrifice that we see around us every day. I think most of us know, deep down, there is something wrong with the world. We, we know that, that this isn't the way the world is meant to be. Human beings and this world, we're, we're like a diseased plant or, or like a computer with a virus. We still mostly kind of work, but we, we don't work as we're intended to, as we're meant to. The Bible's explanation for what's wrong with our world goes much deeper than any of those uh, other suggestions. Much more comprehensive in its assessment of our problem. The Bible's explanation, as we began to see this last week and we're going to see again this week, is that in response to human sin, God has put his good creation under his curse. God has put his good creation under his curse. So last Sunday, that's what we began to see, wasn't it? We saw the, the lie we've all believed, the sin we've all committed, the fear we've all felt. And this week, we see the curse we've all come under. Now, when you hear that word curse, please don't think of God losing his rag in some kind of uncontrollable, toddler-like temper tantrum, smashing his favorite toy on the floor in frustration. That's not what's happening. This is more like the divine judge solemnly passing sentence on human sin. We have turned away from God, and in response, God has in some way turned away from us. This world has gone wrong, not only because of something we've done, but because of something God has done. The God who, who spoke this beautiful, abundant, ordered, 
good world into being by his word, who pronounced his blessing over everything, has now spoken pain, conflict, curse into our existence. Now, I appreciate you might hear that and think, what a load of rubbish. Cursing belongs to the fairy tale mythical legends of wizards and witches, not real life. I get why you might think that. But what I want to do this morning is just ask you to suspend your, your disbelief for a few minutes. And what we're going to do it, through Genesis 3 is look at four symptoms of life under God's curse. And I just want to simply invite you to, to ask whether it fits whether what we see in Genesis 3 fits with what we experience of life in the world. So four symptoms of life under God's curse. Here's the first one. Conflict in relationships. Conflict in relationships. Uh, now, I, I love going to weddings. Uh, Rach and I, hopefully, are hoping, two of our friends just got engaged. We're hoping, got a couple coming up this year. I, I love it when you get to see the bright beaming smiles of the bride and the groom. The happiness on their faces is just a delight to see. And when that's you, when, when you get married, it almost feels as if you could live a whole lifetime off the euphoria and delight that you feel on your wedding day. But it doesn't. Within a few hours or days, or weeks, certainly within a few months, the honeymoon period wears off and reality sets in. Misunderstandings, disagreements, snide remarks, unkind words and angry rows can quickly become the norm. I, I know that for, for many people, singleness is a huge source of unhappiness. But there are also many others for whom their, their loveless, lonely marriages are an even bigger source of unhappiness. And we, we see that conflict in relationships in Genesis 3. What, what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 2, a, a match made in heaven, the first love song in human history, descends into fear, hiding, blame-shifting. And that new tension that we, we heard in the, in the reading as they shift the blame onto one another, it is confirmed in their relationship. And the battle of the sexes begins. In the second half of verse 16, God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. From that verse on its own, it's not that easy to figure out quite what's meant from those verses. But in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, we hear exactly the same words. There, God warns Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. And you must rule over it. In chapter 4, sin's desire is to control Cain and master him, but he must rule over sin. He needs to crush it and suppress it. That is a good thing to do with sin, but a bad thing to do with another person. And so in the context of chapter 3, in the context of marriage, 
both the desire and the rule are not good. Adam's leadership, which is meant to be marked by love and sacrificial service and tender-hearted kindness, becomes a harsh, domineering rule. And Eve's help, which is meant to be marked by joyful encouragement and glad submission, becomes a desire for control. They no longer complement one another the way they were made to, but they compete to control the other. Each trying to get their own way, so service descends into selfishness and harmony gives way to conflict. That's the reason for the shouting matches, the silent treatment, the, the quiet resentment that so many people feel towards the person they're married to. That's the reason for escaping into an affair or pornography or busyness so you just never have to see the other person. And every single marriage is affected by that conflict to some degree. That's why there were more than 100,000 divorces in our country last year. And it's not just marriage, it extends to other relationships too. Rivalries and friendships, frustration with the, the lazy classmate in a group project, conflict with your colleagues, bickering and squabbling between siblings. Every single one of our relationships is affected by this curse, by this conflict. Human beings, we were made to partner with others. But because of God's curse, that partnership is now difficult and frustrating. Instead of joyful partnership, we experience conflict. That's the first symptom of life under God's curse. And secondly, we experience pain in labor. Now, this applies both to the man and to the woman in their respective areas of work. If you remember, what, what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 is that human beings, created male and female, are, are created in God's image with a responsibility to fill and to form the earth like God does. To, to form the earth by ruling over it and developing it and cultivating it, releasing its potential. And to fill the earth with more people made in God's image by increasing and multiplying. And men and women share together responsibility in both of those areas, forming and filling. But what Genesis 2 shows us is that there's also a kind of complementary way in which men and women work in those areas. So Adam is given a particular responsibility to work and keep the ground, to form the earth. It's a responsibility he shares with Eve, but in which Adam has a particularly special role. And in a complementary way, Eve has a particular responsibility in filling the earth. One that she shares with Adam, but in which she has a particular responsibility, a special role in bearing children. And what we see is that in both of those areas, in both of their special roles, their work has become painful labor. For the woman in the first part of verse 16, that means pain in childbearing. What's intended to be and, and is a wonderful time of rejoicing and celebration as a baby is born is also a time of intense agony. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. 
But the pain of childbearing, it's not just restricted to the pain of birthing babies. It's wider than that. It's the whole range of pain and heartache that's just connected to children. It's the pain for some of not being able to have children. It's the pain of the relentless daily grind of caring for small people and parenting them. It's the struggle of raising kids who have additional needs. It's the deep distress of losing a child. It's the anguish of watching your children make foolish decisions. In the very next chapter, Eve is going to experience quite a lot of that in one go. Because of the curse, their commission to fill the earth is frustrated. And so is their commission to form the earth. Adam's work, working the ground, is also affected by God's curse. So I know our Bibles say, with painful toil you will eat. Toil is the same word for labor in verse 16. With painful labor you will eat food. Now, let me be really clear. I'm not comparing those two experiences in any way. One of those painful labors is much more severe than the other. But the point is that they both come from the same source. Painful labor and childbearing, painful labor and work. They, they come from God's curse. They come from the same source. They're both cursed with painful labor in their respective roles. And so we, we saw in chapter 2, Human beings are made to work the world. Work's not a curse. And that's still true, even for us today. Work is a good gift from God. Work is not a curse, but hard work is. Before, Adam's work in the garden was fulfilling, but now it's deeply frustrating. Before, it was satisfying. Now it's just sweaty. And it's striking, isn't it, that Adam's painful labor is always associated with eating. Three times eating is mentioned in verses 17 to 19. In chapter 2, putting food on the table, eating was, was easy abundance. It was as easy as just picking the nearest fruit off the nearest tree. But now Adam has to fight to put food on the table to eat. He's in a constant battle against the ground, desperately trying to cultivate plants and crops while all the while thorns and thistles overtake. Thorns and thistles, thistles which become a kind of symbol of the curse. So Adam has to work tirelessly to eke out a meager existence because now every mouthful of food that they eat by the sweat of his brow is a painful reminder of the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit. And, and that painful labor, it applies to every area of work, not just agriculture. Now, I'm sure uh, those of you who are still working or, or remember your working life, you, you still get that sense occasionally of satisfaction a job well done when you get home. But by and large, work is a daily grind, isn't it? That's why for so many of us, work is such a massive source of unhappiness. That's why in a country where we, where we choose our careers, by and large, for all of us still, work is deeply burdensome. It's filled with frustration and difficulty. We experience pressure. 
boredom, crazily unrealistic expectations from our bosses, unfulfilling tasks, stress. Even those of us who love our jobs find that. Because that's life under God's curse. And so filling and forming the world is doomed to be painful labor. And thirdly, it all ends in death. It all ends in death. Adam and Eve, they're, they're locked in this battle against the ground. And it is a battle that they will lose. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you will return. In the the last few years here, I've done enough funerals now to know those words off by heart. Earth to earth. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. And that is the destiny that all of us face. The ultimate symptom of the curse, the ultimate statistic, death. That is how it ends for every single one of us because the wages of sin is death. And so every day you eat, you exercise, you take your medication, you pop your pills, but it's all just delaying the inevitable return to the dust. Our lives are destined to end in death. Now, I know that we try and sort of hide that reality away from our everyday lives. We hide our cemeteries and crematoriums away behind big high walls so we can't see them. We avoid talking about death in polite conversation. And if we do, we dress it up in cliches and euphemisms. But listen, when it comes to death, you can run, but you cannot hide. Like we saw last week, God does not make empty threats. He warned them if they sinned, they would die. And they do. And so will we. Spiritually, that death for Adam and Eve is immediate. See, we're we're created for relationship with God, the God who is life. But our sin disconnects us from God. And, And when you get disconnected from life, where else can you go but death? So their spiritual death happens straight away. And their physical death, though it's not immediate... It is inevitable. An eternal death will follow. Human beings are like laptops that have been disconnected from the mains. We've still got some battery life in us, but we are slowly dying. And there is no way for us to, to plug ourselves back in. In verses 22 and 23, Adam and Eve, they get banished from the Garden of Eden, barred from accessing the tree of life. And to be cut off from the tree of life, it doesn't just stop us from from physically living forever. It cuts us off from God. That's the point. 
And there is no way that they can get back in. At the entrance to the garden, God places cherubim, warrior angels with flashing, revolving, zigzagging swords of fire. They cannot get back in. So what we see is this. Human beings are created to partner with others, to work the world, and to relate to God. Three crucial relationships. But under the curse, every single aspect of those relationships is catastrophically changed for the worse. Now, before we, before we move on from this, I just want to pause to ask, how does knowing all of this help us? <laughs> just sounds kind of depressing, doesn't it? But I think knowing this, knowing Genesis 3, helps us to live today with understanding. Helps us to live with understanding. Now, if you're a Christian, we ought to live in this world with eyes to see what is good and beautiful that God has made. We ought to appreciate that, to praise him and thank him for the good and the beauty that we experience. But we also need to have some nous about living in this world. Don't be naive about life. We need to be realistic about life, not romantic about it. I've met lots of Christians who seem to have had their expectations of marriage shaped more by the idyllic world of Instagram than by the Bible. And, and so they get surprised when marriage is difficult, when it feels like a battle. You shouldn't be surprised by that. Not if we've read Genesis 3. I've met Christians who seem to have had their expectations of raising children shaped more by the fancy world of Facebook than by the Bible. And so they're surprised when conception of children is not automatic, or when pregnancy is really rough, or when raising children is the most tiring and stressful thing they've ever done, and it is. But we shouldn't be surprised by that, not if we've read Genesis 3. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I know that you know this. I'm not telling you this because you don't know it. Unless Jesus comes back before, we are all going to die. And most likely, that will involve some measure of deep and painful suffering. Your body will slowly break down and decay and die. Just ask the people in this room who are a few years ahead of you. And that can happen at any time. You don't have to be old to experience that. That can happen when you're young as well. The cancer diagnosis, the debilitating disease, is part of life in this fallen world under God's curse. And we must... We must live with understanding about those realities. Otherwise, when it comes, we're totally knocked off course. We must live with understanding about ourselves, our work, our relationships, our life, and our death. Live with understanding. But secondly, live with hope. Live with hope. Because there is a, a fourth, a final symptom of life under God's curse. And it's this. God's grace. The final symptom of life under God's curse 
is God's grace. Throughout this, this chapter 3, it's amazing. There's rays of light, glimmers of hope, signs of God's grace, even amongst the sin and the shame and the death and the curse. We, we see that, for example, in verse 21. God makes clothes for Adam and Eve. I think in one sense it is a reminder of their sin and, they, and their shame. They need to cover up. But in another sense, it's a wonderful expression of God's kindness, isn't it? The last gift he gives them is he pushes them out the garden. Proper clothes. Remember what we saw last week, how tragically inadequate their own attempts to cover themselves are with fig leaves. I found out recently that the Quran also has a story about the fall. And in the Quran, Allah has a solution to the, the fig leaf problem. Piety, good works, that, says Allah in the Quran, is the best covering, good works. But we know, don't we, the Bible says, piety is a paltry attempt at trying to cover ourselves. Isaiah says, even our best, most righteous acts are filthy rags before God. Our attempts to try and cover up ourselves with morality or religious activity or comfort or pleasure or busyness or piety. It's not going to work. It's just another fig leaf. But verse 21 is amazing because it shows us that the real God has a solution to the problem of the fig leaves. And it's not something we produce for ourselves. It's a gift from him. It's a gift that comes through the sacrifice of someone else. That's the only way Adam and Eve get clothing made of skin if an animal has been killed and sacrificed to give it to them, to cover them. God clothes them and covers them through sacrifice. And, and there's another sign of God's grace in verse 20, when Adam names his wife. It's only at this point, right at the end, that she's given the name Eve, which means life. But you might think to yourself, hang on a minute. Surely, after everything that God has just said, he might have been better off calling her woe or curse or suffering. Was Adam not listening just, just then? God has just pronounced the sentence of death, and he calls his wife life. Well, actually, Adam has been listening, very carefully, in fact. He believes God's promise in verse 15. See, right there in the middle of the curse on the snake, God makes a promise that one day, an offspring of the woman will be born, a child will be born to do battle against the snake. An offspring who will finally do what Adam meant to have done, crush Satan's head, who will defeat evil forever. And there's a hint here, isn't here, that the, the serpent crusher himself will be wounded in the process. God says to the snake, you will strike his heel. There is no way back to the garden. But there is a way forward. 
There is a future, and it is a future filled with hope because of that promise, because of that offspring. And and I don't have to tell you, you can see all the ways those glimmers of grace point us forward to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the offspring of the woman, not the man, born of Mary to crush Satan's head. And Jesus came into our world and he experienced life under God's curse. Jesus knows what it's like to experience conflict in relationships, even with his own family. Jesus knows what it's like to experience painful labor as a carpenter. And in going to the cross, Jesus took on himself, he took the curse on his own shoulders. Jesus wore on his head the symbol of our curse, a crown of thorns. And in his death, he was wounded, struck by evil. But through his death and resurrection, evil is defeated. Satan's head is crushed. And we are clothed, our filthy rags replaced by his perfect righteousness through his sacrifice on the cross. Paul says to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing might come to the Gentiles, to us, through Jesus Christ. If you come to Jesus, trusting in him, he takes your death and he takes your curse and he pays it all off on the cross and he gives you as a free gift his life, his blessing and his perfect righteousness. For now... You still have to live in this world which is still under God's curse. You have to experience all those same things, conflict in relationships, painful labor and work, death. So we must live with understanding. Knowing Jesus doesn't take any of those things away. But we also live with great hope. Because Jesus gives us a way forward, not back. Jesus doesn't take us back to the old Eden, but forward to a new, a better Eden, the new creation. And there, there will be no more crying from the conflict of broken relationships. There will be no more pain in labor or work. And there will be no more death or curse only life and blessing forever. Let's pray.